Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 151. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. This week's episode is the last of the late summer hiatus that I took so I could work hard creating a bunch of new content for you that will be coming out starting next week. This week, you're going to hear my interview with Dr. Dick Schwartz, who is the founder of Internal Family Systems, an incredible method which has really changed me personally and my practice when I learned about it through the Ference Institute and uh, Lisa Ference's parts work training when I was getting my trauma certificate there. I think this is really interesting. Dr. Schwartz talks about working with people who have DID and people who are uh, not diagnosed with any mental disorder because we all are made up of many different parts. And uh, this is kind of like a missing piece in working with clients that I have found really beneficial. I haven't had full formal training in IFS, but I did do some training in it with IFS, with Life Force Yoga together, as well as the parts work training I had that's based in IFS. So I'm definitely planning on doing the full level one and level two of Dick Schwartz's training. It's on my list with so many other things, but I hope you'll enjoy this interview and find it interesting. Thanks so much for listening. Just one week left. I don't know as of the time that you hear this, whether there will be any open spaces, but when I'm recording this, there are still a couple of open spaces in the Equine and Daring Way Authentic Self Retreat in Lexington, Kentucky, October 5th and 6th. 
the last day to register if there are any spaces available is September 20th. And I hope you will join us if this is something that you would like to participate in. You can get all the information at bahealing.com slash retreat. Thanks. Therapy Chat Podcast wouldn't exist without the support of its listeners. If you'd like to become a member, please go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. By making a $1 per month donation, you can help Therapy Chat keep going over the long haul. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I have a very interesting and exciting guest to share with you. And we are going to talk about a subject that I'm completely fascinated with. My guest today is Dick Schwartz, PhD, the founding developer of Internal Family Systems. Dick, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Happy to do it, Laura. Happy to talk with you. Thank you. I'm really happy. Let's just start off by, if you would, you telling our audience a bit about yourself and your work. Okay. I'm a pretty old man. <laughs> 58 now. And uh, so this goes back when I was in my early 30s. I had just graduated from a... Uh, PhD program in Maryland Family Therapy. So that's my background as a family therapist. And as such, I was steeped in systems thinking. And I was also one of those uh, zealous family therapists who thought we discovered the Holy Grail. And that those individual therapists that were mucking around in the intrapsyche were wasting their time because we could change all that just by changing these external relationships. At some point, I think it was like 1982 or three, a colleague, Mary Jo Barrett, and I started an outcome study to prove this. And we gathered together about 30 bulimic kids and their families and uh, went ahead and reorganized the families just the way the book said to do it. And many of my clients didn't realize they'd been cured and they kept binging and purging. <laughs> And so out of frustration, I began asking what was going on, and they started talking about these different parts of them. And they were talking, that was the word they used, and they were talking about them as if they had a lot of autonomy and that they could take over their uh, psyche and make them do things that they didn't want to do and make them feel terrible. And they talked about how they would fight with each other inside and so at first I got scared. I thought, oh, my God, I've got a collection of uh, multiple personality clients was the term back then. And uh, But I got curious and just started asking more and more questions about how they all related to each other. And, and you know, it did sound familiar to me as a family therapist. It sounded like this inner system or even an inner family. And uh, so then I, I got intrigued, and I also noticed – that I had them too, and some of mine were as extreme about food as theirs. So basically, I, I, I got out of that scared place and, and uh, became curious and, and learned this whole model from these clients in the early days. And then there was a time when I thought these things must be what the field thought they were. So the critic, for example, would be a internalized parental voice or the binge would be some kind of out of control impulse. And so I was trying to get my clients to, to control them or, or uh, 
uh, yeah, not let them take over and to fight with them. And they, that was making my clients worse, but I didn't know what else to do given that I thought of these things that way. And so it wasn't until the first client I was aware of that had an extensive sex abuse history and also cut herself that all this changed because I was trying to get the cutting part to stop. And I, by then I learned about the Gestalt empty chair technique where you would have a, a client imagine that there was a part sitting across from them in an empty chair. And then you could have them move into that chair and be the part and you'd have these kind of dialogues. And so I would have my client just telling that cutting part that it couldn't do it anymore. And I would be saying that in a kind of coercive way. And so then finally the part agreed not to cut her one session. And of course I opened the door to the next session and she has a big gash down the side of her pegs. And at that point I collapsed and I just said, I give up, I can't beat you to the part. And it said, well, I don't really want to beat you. And that was a kind of historic turning point in the development of this because I shifted out of that coercive place to just being curious and said, well, then why do you do this to her? And the part, the cutting part, talked about how it had to do that when she was being abused to get her out of her body and to contain the rage that would get her more abuse. And then I shifted again. Now, not just curious, but I have a kind of a deep appreciation for the heroic role the part had played in her life. And I convey that to the part and have her do that. And the part burst into tears because everybody had been trying to get rid of it and fight with it and had demonized it. And finally somebody was listening to it and began to talk about how it still needed to protect these very vulnerable parts that were still there. And it, it uh, thought, you know, saw the world it was very scary, and as I got all that, it sounded like this part wasn't living in the present, like it was still stuck back in the, the abuse time. And so it occurred to me that maybe these parts are like kids in a family. Like family therapy's big insight was that you can't take a kid out of a family and tell them to just stop acting out. You have to understand the role that the child is playing in the family system and how all these other relationships have to change before the child would be freed up to change. Maybe the same thing was happening with these parts. And indeed, that turned, that's panned out to be the case these 30-some years later. So when I got hit to that, that these parts aren't what they seemed, and in fact, our like children had been forced into roles they didn't even like, I started to shift and I tried to get my clients to get to know them instead of fighting with them and, and uh, actually update them about how they aren't so vulnerable now and so on. So with all of that, I, I came to suddenly realize that maybe none of these parts are what they seem. Even the ones that seem so destructive are just trying their best to keep the system safe. And now, 30-some years later, and thousands of people using this around the world pretty safely can say that that's true, that there aren't any bad ones. And I'm sort of the real Will Rogers of the phenomenon. I've never met a part that ultimately I didn't like. So that's 
kind of a radical view in our field. It takes me back to the, the basic assumption, which is that the natural state of the mind is to be multiple, such that people with DID or multiple personality disorder aren't so different from you and me, except the horrific abuse they suffered blew their system apart. So there's a lot of uh, amnesic barriers and uh, compartmentalized compartmentalization such that parts don't have that much contact with each other and, and they're very polarized with each other. But the idea that theirs are full range alter personalities for me is no different. That it's the natural state of the mind to be born with these alters or parts or ego states or sub-personalities, sub a lot of different names for them. And virtually anybody who's done inner exploration has run into them. And that they're unlike the trauma field, and many people in the trauma field who believe that they're the split off sort of remnants or uh, pieces of the, the unitary mind, they're not the product of trauma. Their extremeness is a product of trauma. The role they're in is a product of trauma often. But uh, they come with us into life. So, and again, that's kind of a radical position in our field. So I'll pause here and just see how this sits with you. Yeah, thank you. I just want to sort of put a frame around what you were just saying, that the different parts aren't there because of trauma. But maybe the trauma is the reason why a person would be unaware of the parts, some of the parts, like why there's an amnesia about some of the parts. Yeah, yeah. So some of the, the effect of trauma, let's say you're in a single parent family, you're a child in a single parent family, and an intruder breaks into your house and your, your single parent, maybe your mother, kind of uh, abdicated and hid or something, or, and you had to deal with the intruder. Mm -hmm. So now you don't trust your parents' leadership anymore, and you become what in family therapy is called a parentified child. And you now have a lot of extreme beliefs and emotions that entered your system because of this, all of this. And, and that's pretty much what happens with these inner systems when they're traumatized, especially when you're a child. There are parts that, that uh, push what I'm going to call self out of the way, and I'll talk about self in a minute, and then take on these, these uh, managerial parental roles inside and get stuck in that role because of what happened. And they carry a lot of what I call burdens from the experience, which are definite, definition, which is an extreme belief and emotion that came into your system from a trauma or from an attachment injury. So, uh, so it's all for me, it's all very parallel to external families. I see. So the roles that the, family members play and the children play in a family, as you said before, in an external family are the same types of 
roles that are divided up inside of us in our internal family? Yeah, well, uh, these parts find themselves. It isn't their nature. It's not their naturally what they're designed to be, but they find themselves forced out of their naturally valuable states into these roles that, as I say, sometimes are quite destructive. And they're frozen in time. They're stuck back in the time of the trauma. And they carry these extreme beliefs and emotions from it. And all of that maintains them in these extreme, often protective roles. And then there are other parts, often the ones who are the most hurt by the trauma, which are these, what you know, commonly are called these inner children, young parts, who are the most sensitive parts of you, who often are the most hurt by the trauma. So what initially seemed like a playful, loving, creative, happy inner child that you loved having access to, once it gets hurt, it's not so much fun to be around because now it carries a lot of the terror or the shame or the, the pain, the loneliness, betrayal from the trauma. And so now you don't want to be around it. You, you tend to lock it in some kind of an inner container inside, and it becomes what we call an exile. And you think you're just locking up memories, sensations, emotions, and beliefs. You don't realize you're actually locking up your juice because now it seems contaminated with all these burdens. So, and when you, when you have a lot of exiles, you as a person feel much, much more vulnerable in the world. And mm -hmm. so the other parts have to be much, much more protective. So that's the main distinction of this model between these vulnerable exiles who you're struggling to keep from being triggered again so that nothing similar to the original trauma happens to you. And also you're struggling to keep them contained so they don't overwhelm you, they don't break out, and you're not flooded by all those uh, flames of emotion. And then these protectors whose job it is to contain all the exiles and to protect them from being triggered. Okay, I got it. So I just want to go back for a second because there was so much in what you said in your first few minutes of talking about the difference in the way of working with behaviors that a client or us in our lives may exhibit, like cutting or binging, self-destructive behaviors, the difference from struggling with them, trying to control them to seeing them as adaptive and seeing them as having a positive intention. Yeah, actually seeing them as heroic. So yeah, appreciating them. them, yeah. Honoring them almost like you would the, a serviceman, you know, a, a Marine or something, because they, they took on a role that you needed at the time, and then they're kind of stuck there. Yeah, and that idea of seeing eating disordered behavior as heroic. It's just so counter to the way it's seen in our culture and the way we as therapists typically relate to it in, in therapy work. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, everybody is all about let's defeat ad, you know, eating disorder. Yeah. Most, most of the treatment centers around the country subscribe to this and it's uh 
it's a big problem because Ed will kick your ass. <laughs> now, the reason the death rate for anorexia is so high is because everybody's trying to fight the anorexic part. And it will kill you as it tries to fight for its ability to protect you. It's kind of ironic. Mm. So we go to parts just to listen to how they got into their roles and learn about what they protect and honor them for uh, trying to keep you safe when you were young, which is almost always the case. And when you, when you approach them this way, instead of trying to get rid of them or, or shame them into stopping, they relax and they don't fight. And they're like uh, the cutting part, they burst into tears often. And they'll share what I call their secret history of how they got forced into the role they were in. And then we can set about negotiating with them to go to what they protect so we can actually heal that which would then liberate them from these roles they're in. And some of that negotiation would go something like to an anorexic part. If we could heal the parts of you that you're trying to keep her away from or protect in some way so that you didn't have to do this job, what might you like to do instead? And you'd be amazed at the answers to that question. Wow. That's, yeah, it's such a different way. Like you were saying, it's a pretty radical difference from the way that people often practice with these safety contracts and promising not to do certain things. And Yeah, and we do the same thing with suicide. So, yeah, it's, it's quite radical. Therapist, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, my gosh. Did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used Therapy Notes for six years, and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is, if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. But IFS is an evidence-based practice. So, and as you've said, People, thousands of people are using it around the world, so it actually works. <laughs> it actually works a lot better, trust me. It's, and it's a lot easier on the therapist because it's no fun to constantly wrestle and lose all these battles with these uh, scary parts. Yeah, and it's really not fun for the client either to have the shame and disappointment in wanting to comply with what the therapist is asking and for some reason that they don't understand, they aren't able to. That's right. And that's what happens. Either you get what in the addictions field is like, it's called a white knuckle recovery, where certain parts totally take over the person's personality 
and lock up the the addictive part or the cutting part or the suicidal part. But that takes a lot of energy to keep all that contained. And so people get caught kind of rigid to do it. So this isn't doesn't involve any of that. In fact, let me t talk about another aspect of the model I haven't mentioned yet, or I didn't mention, but deserves further. Um, so as I was doing all this back in the day, and I would try to have, now that I know my, these parts aren't what they seem, and I was trying to get my client to get along with them and listen to them and, and help them out of their roles. And I would be having those kind of dialogues. You know, I'm a relationship therapist. I'm a family therapist. So I'm having my client talk to maybe a critic inside or a cutting part or some part like that. But my client would be suddenly getting angry at the part as we would do this. And it reminded me of family sessions where I might be talking or trying to have a teenage girl talk to her critical mother, for example. And all of a sudden the girl is getting angry at the mother. And we were taught to look around the room and see if somebody isn't covertly siding with the girl against the mother. And often you'd find the father is doing that. And when you ask the father to step back out of her line of vision, things would settle down and they'd have a better conversation. So it occurred to me, maybe the same thing's happening in this inner system. As I'm trying to have my client talk to this, this extreme part in a, in a relational way, maybe another part is interfering. And so I would ask clients, could you find the one who hates the critic and ask it to step back? Basically the same thing I was doing with families. And they'd say, okay, it did, to my amazement. And say, now how do you feel toward this critic? It would be entirely different. Sometimes equally extreme. Sometimes now I'm afraid of it. But if we also ask the fear to step back. At some point, suddenly, spontaneously, and universally, they would enter what now is called a mindful state, where they would say, I'm just, I'm calm, and I'm just kind of curious about why it's doing what it's doing. And they would seem confident relative to it. And from that place, the conversation with the part would go very well. And when I started asking clients, now what part of you is that? They'd say that's not really a part like these others. That's more myself or my core self, my true self. That's more of who I am. So I came to call that the self with a capital S to distinguish it from the common usage of the word self, which means the whole personality. And it turns out, again, 30-some years later, thousands of people doing this, that that core, that essence, that self is in everybody, even the most severely diagnosed clients with the, the most horrible histories. And it can't be damaged. And it can be accessed much more quickly than people thought, simply by getting these protective parts to open space for it inside. Now, sometimes that takes some negotiation, but it's just beneath the surface of these, uh, these intense protective parts. And when it emerges, it comes forward in sort of the same way in everybody with um, these wonderful, what we call C-word qualities like curiosity and calm and 
our confidence and compassion even for parts they've been fighting with all their lives or creativity and how they relate to the parts or courage, enough courage to go to these exiles that they've been terrified of and a sense of feeling connected to the parts and to humanity in general. So this has become the centerpiece of the model, this conviction that that self, as I said, can't be damaged and is in everybody, even clients where you would, based on traditional psychology, you would think would not have any business having any of those qualities because attachment theory has said that to have any of that, you had to have had certain kind of parenting during a critical period in your childhood. And I'm talking about clients that were tortured on a daily basis. There's no way they got it from either of their parents. So at some point I had to conclude this is just in us. It's our birthright. It's not something, uh, contrary to attachment theory, it's not something that has to come in relationship. And that's also quite a radical position. Well, it is, to me, it is new because I my orientation is towards more of an attachment theory, but it's also like good news because there are some people who didn't get that. And to think that, you know, it as a human being and what my personal values and beliefs are, it's, it's really hard for me to square the idea that there's anybody who doesn't have humanity inside of them, you know? And, you know, to believe that under some circumstances, you know, the most extreme cases of abuse that some people would not have that, that doesn't sit right for me. Yes. And it's also good news for the therapist because you don't have to become that good attachment figure for the client. IFS is often thought of as attachment theory taken inside. So that what I'm calling self becomes the good attachment figure to the parts some of whom are uh, insecurely attached and some are avoidantly and, and some are uh, blocking the third one. Disorganized? Anyway, yeah, disorganized. So they all start to look to the client's self rather than the therapist, rather than their partner for, uh, for security, for, for connection. And self becomes like an inner good parent. Again, that's that's reassuring for the therapist and I'm sure for the client that you have within you what you need. You just need someone to help you find it and then you do the rest. Yeah, and it's a tough sell for a lot of trauma clients because they haven't had any access to that virtually all their lives. So they'll say, their parts will say, there's nobody like that inside of me or that died back when I was being abused. But it turns out not to be true. And if I can convince them to open enough space, it always shows up. Yeah. So I have seen IFS therapists work with people who have had no, no training in parts work and help them access the different parts and self so quickly. It's pretty amazing to see. It is, it is quite remarkable. It turns out that we've kind of been socialized away from our multiplicity, partly because of the trauma field. You know, multiplicity has been pathologized. 
by movies like Sybil and, uh, you know, it's seen as pathology. Yeah. And so there's a kind of fear of even acknowledging it. And, and so that's part of what I've been up against all these years. Just finished a book on this topic where we, we looked through the whole history of the way multiplicity has been viewed and how there were many times that people said, no, it's natural the mind to be multiple. And then many people just uh, shut all that down, both in the culture and in psychotherapy. And so I'm trying to revive this idea now. So that it's, it's actually healthy. The, the mind, one mind can't do everything we have to do. It, it takes village. And so it's great to have all these different parts. They're not pathological. They can be pathological when they're forced out of their naturally valuable states. So what I've been taught, and I want to make sure that this is the same way that you're seeing it, or if not, learn more from you, is that it's there's nothing wrong with us having all these different parts, but the the pathology is about the parts not being integrated into a whole. Yes and no. So... That is the position of the field when you think of a whole as the disappearance of the parts into one mind, right? Mm. And that's the DID position. Okay. My position is a kind of yes and no. It's, it's integrating parts, but not so that they disappear and you just have one mind. It's bringing them all back home so they trust self-leadership, which, as I said, can take some time. And so that they're liberated from their, their roles, their extreme roles they've been forced into. They've been unburdened. They've released the extreme beliefs and emotions they carry. And they now start to harmonize with each other. And when that happens, when they start to get to know each other and find different ways to relate, you feel much more unitary. You don't know, you hardly notice your parts because they're all working together. They don't stand out the way they used to. But they don't disappear. The analogy I often make is to a flock of birds. If, if we looked out a window today and saw a big flock of birds, they'd be, they'd be moving as if they were one organism. But you could still pull a bird out of the flock and would have autonomy. So that's what we're shooting for with these parts. So, yeah, part of, again, part of the pathologizing of parts is to say, they're the product of trauma. They're, they're um, you know, a split-off thing that needs to be put back together like Humpty Dumpty. Okay. So I think the way you're talking about it is the way I I see it because I've been taught that, but but not the way that it's always viewed. Because I think what the way I'm saying integration is that all the parts are valued as yeah. part of what makes the whole what it is rather than certain parts aren't allowed to be there because that's then you're not integrated in my, the way I was taught. Yeah. So that's, that's, I, I agree with that. Thank you for explaining that distinction. Cause I think, you know, there are a lot of public perceptions about multiplicity. Like you said, the movie Sybil, I think that did, you know, really scare so many people. Yeah, there's a new movie called Split. I don't know if you saw it, but it's the same. You know, the DID client is murderer, and, you know, it just makes it all look real scary and bad. Right. And I know that not 
everyone who can benefit from IFS has trauma, because as you say, everyone has parts of themselves. But can you talk about who IFS can help? And then I'd also be interested in how it can help people who have trauma. Well, we work with virtually every diagnosis. So we we work with schizophrenia. We work with uh, DID quite a bit. We work, you know, any most anything you can think of. So but there are contraindications, but they have nothing to do with diagnosis. It's much more about is the external context of the client safe enough to do this kind of work? Or are you going to be able to hold what I call self-energy as a therapist? Or are you going to get triggered by something about them, which makes it uh, dangerous to the client? But we work with virtually every diagnosis you can think of this way. So from someone who just feels a little bit worried about something to someone who has whatever the most extreme types of symptoms would be. Yeah, and, and symptoms are generally the activities of protective parts. So if I'm working with a client and they suddenly dissociate, I don't try to, quote, unquote, ground them with grounding skills where you, you know, say, look into my eyes and breathe and, and feel your feet on the floor. Because that gives the message to the part who's trying to take them out that it shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't belong here. It needs to leave. So instead, if I was working with you, Laura, and you suddenly dissociated, I'd say, oh, I see a part just took you out. Can I talk to it directly for a second? And then I'd say, okay, so are you the part of Laura that just took her out? The part would say, yes, or you might just shake your head. And, and we'd have a conversation about it. I'd say, okay, why did you do that? What are you afraid would happen if you'd let her stay in her body? And they usually have pretty good reasons for taking, taking you out. Often it's because they're afraid of the emotion that's coming up and afraid you can't handle it. And most of these parts, this is amazing. If anybody wants to just try this, if, if I were to ask that part how old it thought you were, most of the time I get a single digit because there's frozen back when you were nine years old and you couldn't protect yourself and they did have to take you away from these emotions because you wouldn't have been able to handle them. And so just updating them, just letting you know I'm not nine anymore and I'm not living there, helps a lot of these, these even highly symptomatic parts relax a lot. So in that example, does the therapist let the part know how old the person is or does the person, the client, tell the other part? Yeah, ideally, I would have that conversation and I would say, would you be willing to hear from Laura how old she is? And then I would say, okay, let me talk to you again, Laura. And then I would say to you, how do you feel toward this part as you heard that conversation I had with it? And ideally, you would have some access to self and you'd say, oh, I I feel some compassion for it because I see it, it's really desperately trying to protect what it thinks is a little girl. I said, well, let it know that and do let it know how old you really are and just see how it reacts. And a lot, a lot of times these parts are totally astounded. And I've had it where people had to go and get a newspaper and show them what the real date is because they just couldn't believe that you've grown up. That's so amazing. And I, I saw that in a training. I saw 
And, you know, the person who the trainer was working with one of the participants and the person did not have any dissociative disorder or anything, but they, when they told their part how old they are, and then they listened to what the part said internally without talking out loud, they said that the part didn't know that, you know? Yes, really, really common because they're all frozen in time at the time of the trauma and they live back there. And so a lot of the healing work is going to these parts with an open mind and asking them to show what happened and how bad it was, where they're stuck in the past. And once they feel fully witnessed, then I would have you as yourself, Laura, enter that scene and be with often that little girl in the way she needed back there. And we would do that until the girl felt like she was ready to leave with you, felt connected to you. And then we would take her to a safe, comfortable place. Sometimes in the present, sometimes a fantasy place, sometimes a different time in your life. At which point that little girl would be ready to unload the feelings and beliefs she got from the trauma. And so that we have a little bit of a ritualized process for doing that. And as soon as all that's out of her body, immediately she would become a playful little girl and would want to go play probably. And it is, it seems miraculous, but it really can happen that quickly. And before we had her go play, we'd bring in all those protectors to see that she's okay and they don't need to protect her anymore. And that begins that integration process where they now are freed up to leave their extreme roles and, and be much more of who they're designed to be. Wow. Really powerful. And I don't have IFS training yet, but um, <laughs> the parts work training I've had that incorporated your teachings in a smaller way um, through Lisa Ferentz is it's the most, I don't know, it's, it's an incredibly impactful type of work to do with clients and also for ourselves as clinicians, even in learning experientially, you know, you realize how many parts of yourself you exile. Yeah. Yeah. So a big part of our training is helping therapists learn about their protectors and their exiles so that what's called counter-transference where, you know, you're with a client and suddenly you feel something extreme. So in the moment, you can kind of notice, oh, okay, here's that protective part that's come up. I'm just going to ask it to give me some space so I can get my heart back open and my mind back open. And you'll feel this as it, as it separates, you'll feel an immediate shift in those directions. And then, you you know, you follow up afterwards and you, check with the part about why it got so triggered and maybe even trade sessions with somebody so that you can work on what it's protecting so it doesn't keep getting triggered by the same client or by the same situation. So when you can do that, your clients become what I call your tormentors, or the hyphen between the tor and the mentor, because by triggering you, they're mentoring you about what you need to heal. And we all have stuff we need to heal. Yeah, and most... People who are attracted to becoming trauma therapists have some trauma themselves. So 
when your client is with, let's say, a very vulnerable, hurting, young part of them, and they're showing a lot of that, it's going to start to trigger those parts of you that were hurt in a similar way. And if you don't have a good relationship with those parts of you, then all your protectors are going to rush in and interfere. So, you know, there's no getting away with not doing your own trauma work to be able to stay present with trauma clients. So true. And one thing Lisa taught us in the training is that you can't tell that part of yourself just to step aside and promise to come back and then not come back to yeah. it. Right. Yeah, it's all very real. You have to take this all very seriously as an inner family because it's just like telling a kid in a family you're going to do something for them and then, then forgetting. It's the same process. It's a beautiful model, and I love the concept of self with a capital S and the compassion, curiosity, calm, confidence, creativity, courage and connection. So beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough sell, as you can imagine, because uh, so many, especially trauma folks, believe that trauma wipes all, all that out. I've had these debates, for example, with Bessel van der Kolk, where he'll show a slide of an MRI of a trauma survivor where their prefrontal cortex is totally dark, you know, they're not lit up at all. And he'll say, this is what we're dealing with. And so we have to teach these people all these affect regulation skills and all these skills because they don't have a prefrontal cortex that's on. And I'll say, no, that's not true. That's what they look like when a protector takes over and takes out, dissociates or takes their prefrontal cortex out. But as soon as that part relaxes, it'll light up again. And so he said, prove it. So we're actually trying to do that. Wow. Bessel van der Kolk, if you're listening and you would like to come on and um, dispute this, please contact me. (laughs) (laughs) That's so amazing. I just love that you said that because all the things we've learned and you know, we're like integrating the information that we've learned. And Bessel van der Kolk is someone I greatly admire and certainly have learned a ton from his books and his trainings and he talks too. and stuff. Yeah. Well, I make that very clear. He has really uh, almost single-handedly created this field and has done a great job of alerting people to the impact of trauma. And he's a close friend. Yes. I mean... It would be to see someone like you and someone like him having that kind of discussion is just, uh, it's like a dream come true for someone who's fascinated with trauma. So I, I love, it's such an exciting time. It's, it's so positive, all the good work that's out there. Gosh, I'm just really happy about it. Same here. <laughs> Thank you so much for all of your contributions to this field. It's it's incredible what you've done and it's I'm so deeply honored that you took the time to be on Therapy Chat today. I wish I could talk with you for another hour or so, but I know we can't, but I really enjoyed it too, Laura. So you're a good interviewer. Oh, thanks. Where can people who either want to learn 
IFS or want to find an IFS therapist or, or read your books and hear more about what you're doing, where can they find you? So our website is selfleadership.org. And on there, they can learn about what we call level one trainings, which are either six three-day weekends spread over a course of a year or two six-day blocks with some online stuff. And uh, so that that's one of the entry points. The other one is what's called the online circle, which is obviously an online subscription program that uh, teaches uh, the basics, particularly for people that can't get to one of these training programs. And all that is listed on the website as is a directory of therapists all over the, all over the world, really. And uh, the store, which has all the books and uh, videos and so on, too. Wonderful. Well, Dick, thank you again so much for being my guest today on Therapy Chat. I can't wait for our audience to hear this and eat it all up. You're very welcome, Laura. It was a pleasure. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.